Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that we have some new pieces of merch that we wanted to introduce. We have a new t-shirt. It's the Paul Revere shirt. Paul Revere on horseback saying, He gave him the knife. <laughs> it was previously only available at our live dates, but now it's available at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. You're going to want that shirt. It was drawn by Jess Gupta, my friend who told the original story about he gave him the knife. The person who said he gave him the knife originally on our podcast. So it all comes full circle. What else? Well, in honor of finally reaching the episode 25 on our podcast, we're also very happy to introduce our very first pieces of merch for babies. Yes. Babies come with hats, Toby tells us, and therefore we decided to make some baby hats. You can finally have a baby hat. It's a nice gender neutral white hat that says what's next on it. And in addition to the baby hat, we've also got West Wing Weekly onesies and kids' tees. The onesies and the kids' tees answer President Bartlett's question, what's next? They say, I'm what's next. That's right. You can get all of this stuff at thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. We're really excited for you to see it. And there's just a two-week window here, folks. So jump on that new merch right away. Go to thewestwingweekly.com slash merch. And now... On to our episode. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Well, every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than just posting your job online and praying for the right people to see it. So if you're hiring, check out ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter will blow your mind. And right now... It'll blow your mind for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash West Wing. Check it out. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi-ho, we're back with more The West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. My name is Rishi K. Shirway, And today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 13. It's called Night 5. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by Christopher Missiano, and it first aired, here we go again, on <laughs> February 6th, 2002. This episode was submitted for consideration for an Emmy nomination for Martin Sheen. It was submitted for a Emmy nomination for Richard Schiff, and it was also part of the package that won the West Wing Outstanding Drama. Huh. I wouldn't have submitted it for any of those. <laughs> would you have that's a fine episode but is it a particularly is it the paragon of west wing episodes is it a an extraordinary example of martin sheen or richard schiff's work it is pretty hard to pick i, I wouldn't pick this one for toby maybe i'm with you on that i did like martin sheen's performance in this though uh, they're both great i mean they're always great yeah but uh uh, jumping right in, I especially liked the delivery of uh, his exchange at the beginning with Adam Arkin, who returns as Stanley Keyworth, when he says, Josh was shot. Me too. Is that why you can't sleep? How would I know? It's a fair point. Thank you. The way he says thank you at the end, I really like. Like, he's cantankerous. I mean, he's cranky, certainly, probably because he hasn't slept my overall takeaway from the episode was that I hope that Stanley has some clients who value his skills and have <laughs> respect for his profession. Because uh, judging solely from the president and Josh Lyman, 
All right, we get it. You're going to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle and then just vomit up your deepest and darkest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit of... Although, again, I actually very much enjoy their scenes, um, but we've seen this dynamic already. A little bit when the president says... Yeah, we know you. You helped Josh out last year. He could have also added, and so we know that you can deal with an ass for a client. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let me, let's go back to the cold open altogether. Yeah. There is an example of something, a Sorkinism that I like in spite of itself. This whole thing with each person at some point asking Stanley the same question. Mm-hmm. It first comes out casually from Sam and seems like just uh, idle chit-chat. Anybody you know on the plane? Then, of course, we see that it's on everyone's mind. Everyone's essentially posing the same question. Why do they care? Why do they care? Yeah. I think what the president says, you know, it's an election year. He's like, it's an election year. And with the MS thing and everything, you know, me seeing a doctor and you seeing being a psychiatrist, especially, I think they're worried about the, what it might imply if the president, in addition to having like all these physical ailments, also needs a psychiatrist. Yes. Except that the second major thread of the cold open is that Stanley does not know why he's been brought to the White House. He thinks he's there to see Josh Lyman. Right. So why the whole second part of it? Did any, does anyone know? Did he know? First of all, you would assume as a professional, he's not going to reveal anything, even if he does run into a friend. Mm-hmm. But second of all, and insurmountable, I think, in then trying to understand why they're obsessed with whether he ran into anyone he knew, he doesn't know why he's there. They pulled <laughs> the wool over his eyes. He thinks he's there to see Josh Lyman. So if he ran into a friend and was a completely unprofessional therapist, he would say, yeah, I'm going to see Josh Lyman. He got shot. And so there's no there there. <laughs> I see that. I think that's perfectly valid. Because, yeah, what kind of therapist would he be if he went around saying uh, who his clients were? Yeah. I mean, you would think they could have also said to him, hey, the president would like to see you. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. But having not done that, they're like, we got to lie to this guy altogether. And then they're still obsessively trying to figure out whether he spilled the beans about this thing he doesn't know. The only person who doesn't ask him that, I think, tellingly, is Josh, the person who actually has dealt with him the most. Josh says, Yeah, you want to know if you talked to anybody on the way here? I didn't. Like, he's almost like, yeah, I, I get it. This is just everybody. I think it's more like everybody's on edge, less and less that everybody has this really... Uh, well, but they're all formulating the exact same question. Yeah. It seems like they've had a cover-your-ass conversation about, like, you know... It essentially seems to me like if he said, yeah, I ran into a guy I went to high school with, they would then kill Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I can't really defend that one. And even at the same time as I watch and I realize it makes no sense, I still kind of get a kick out of it. I do, yeah. Yeah. In in spite (laughs) of itself, I still kind of like the way uh, each iteration of the same question. Mm -hmm. Did you know where it was going? Did you remember this episode? No, no, of course not. Were you similarly surprised when it turned out that he wasn't there to see Josh? No. Well, I guess I guess I couldn't tell you whether I think I was just clever enough to kind of figure it out pretty quickly. But maybe I don't even know whether I've seen this before, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I assume I've seen this episode. I don't know. My my brain is pudding. So, yeah, I don't know. But pretty d- quickly you figured out there was something else going on, that he was there to see the president. Yes. Actually, I have to say from the downbeat 
I got the sense that he was there to see the president because right. of where we left off last time. Just the, yeah. the fact that I didn't know about the insomnia or any specific thing, but the fact that we had such a significant burrowing into his psyche, into Bartlett's psyche by Toby, I was sort of off the top seeing him and I thought, oh, somebody needs to have a chat. Right. So it wasn't a huge reveal to me. Mm-hmm. A thing that happens in the cold open, or rather the transition from the cold open to the actual episode that I don't think has ever happened before, which is it goes from the scene into the opening titles and then goes right back to the scene, the same scene and just continuing. Right. Literally the next line of dialogue. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's something that we haven't seen before. Yeah. I noted that as well. That was, uh, it's particularly enjoyable watching on Netflix without an actual commercial in between. It really kind of felt like, where were we? Oh yeah. That's where we were. Yeah. I did notice during the tour, I want to throw out, because it's been a while since I've given a book recommendation, or you have, during the also weird charade of giving Stanley a tour, just in case, I guess, they walk by someone else who knows who Stanley is, and that person surmises that he's there to see the president um, <laughs> on his little faux tour, or I guess it's a real tour for faux purposes. Josh Lyman mentions the Resolute Desk in the Oval yeah. Office. And yeah. I did read an incredibly great book about how that desk came to be donated to the United States, to Rutherford B. Hayes, as Josh points out. Um, there's a mm-hmm. book called Resolute, The Epic Search for the Northwest Passage and John Franklin and the Discovery of the Queen's Ghost Ship by Martin <laughs> W. Sandler. I, for some reason, I love reading books about Arctic exploration and the search throughout the 1800s and on for the Northwest Passage. And there's a famous disappearance of ships under John Franklin. And then there were many, many, uh, maybe even hundreds, but certainly tens and scores of attempts to find out what happened to John Franklin and his, I think, 128 men who Hmm. disappeared, never to be heard from again. And the Resolute was a ship sent on such a mission, and the Resolute itself was frozen into Arctic ice and ended up being discovered in the United States in U.S. waters, empty as a ghost ship, sent back to Queen Victoria, and she had the timbers from the Resolute made into the Resolute desk that was then uh, given to the United States. And this is an incredibly fascinating, exciting, mysterious book about all that. (laughs) There was a movie that came out in 2002 called Ghost Ship. And I remember walking around UCLA's campus near where I lived at the time. And um, there was a poster for it. And I didn't know what the movie was. It was just a picture of a ship with like kind of a, a skull's face on the front of it. And I misread the tagline as the title. The tagline was Sea Evil, S-E-A, Evil. And I thought that was the title of the movie. And the title was the tagline. So for me, I read it as this movie, Sea Evil, and the tagline was Ghost Ship. <laughs> it might have done better that way. How did it crack me up so much? Ghost Even ship. after I realized that I had made the mistake, everything, my own mistake, the, but the idea that somebody's tagline would be Ghost Ship. <laughs> I, was, I hope you saw the movie after all that. No. Huh. <laughs> Maybe if it were about the Resolute Desk, I would have. Well, maybe it was. <laughs> I'll never know. <laughs> I guess not. You didn't see it. Yep. Sir John Franklin, also known as The Man Who Ate His Boots. And I think there's a book called The Man Who Ate His Boots. Another great mm. book about Sir John Franklin. 
He threw up afterwards, thus giving rise to the term booting. Nice. <laughs> Since we'll probably cut all that stuff about the ghost chip, let me give you this other what? digression. Like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking about how ornery the president was being to Stanley, and I was reminded of a time when I wanted to find a therapist. I didn't have anything in particular that I wanted to discuss, but I just felt like it was something that I ought to do or try anyway. And so I had no experience with it. And I was just kind of trying different people out from looking online. And, and I had a lot of trouble finding someone. I went through three different therapists that I tried because I felt pretty sure that in order for it to work for me, I needed to find someone who I was convinced was smarter than I was. Someone who could outsmart me, basically. Hmm. And it took a lot of people. I went 0 for 3. And I wasn't trying to be, be like arrogant or something, but, you know, I'd have a conversation. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they call me Too Late Hill. <laughs> wow. The whole premise of that is completely wrong. The idea that a therapist needs to be smarter than you. And, and even the idea of like how you determine somebody being, you know, I was young and dumb, but I thought that that was, that was what I needed. Well, I can understand that. You're putting it in plain language, but you want somebody that you believe is going to give you insights into yourself that you were not too stupid, but you're unable to come to on your own. So it, it's, it makes sense that you want to find somebody of pro. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't understand what therapy was or what it could do or how you use it. So I didn't know. But yeah, that was where I was coming from. And so watching this scene, I was thinking, God, imagine if the president feels the same way, that he needs to be able to be outsmarted by his therapist. That is a tall order. Ha, indeed. I was thinking watching this, how much, I think, in 15 years, societal attitudes towards mental health and towards help in that arena has changed. And... Mm -hmm. I would love to think that the president of the United States maybe lay down on a couch every now and then and discuss what's on his mind. Like that seems Absolutely. like that seems like a very healthful approach to the one of the most stressful uh, jobs one could have. Yeah. But you know, the, this whole to do in order to kind of usher him in the back door, lest anybody discover that the president is going to see a uh, therapist. What is Stanley? I don't. What's the right nomenclature? Is he? A, He's is a, a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist. Yeah. I think also speaks to. I mean, again, it's the president, and the, again, as President Bartlett puts it. There's a lot going on, and maybe throwing this into the mix would be something they'd like to avoid. I get it. But I also think uh, 15 years later, it's a little bit less loaded. I'd like to think so. What else happens in this episode? Well, we've got another intense, yet largely, almost entirely, in terms of the action, off-screen subplot with this reporter who has been kidnapped. Another off-screen Billy. There you go. This is Billy Price, who's been abducted in the Congo. By the Mai Mai. I thought it was really telling the way there's this little detail when they finally get the Congolese attache to come to the White House. Leo introduces him and gets his name wrong. This is McKinnon Laboko, the Congolese attache. McKinnon. I'm sorry. Like just that little detail before we've even gotten into the real heart of the issue, I thought was a, a nice foreshadowing of what the dynamic was going to be between these people. Yeah, I absolutely agree. A great, almost throwaway moment, but that does color the ensuing conversation. And in, in a sense, to me, the way it landed, I was surprised how, I guess, disrespectfully he's treated by CJ and Leo. They yeah. really just kind of lay into this guy. Yeah. In a way that 
surprised me. So there's this slight little moment of sort of cultural misunderstanding or like, hey, you didn't, again, I wish you would go to the trouble of learning my name. Um, And then I think it's sort of continued in their attitude towards him, especially from CJ. I was surprised that she would speak to an attache. She's just like very bottom line. How much money is it going to take and where does it go? And the Congolese government. The Congolese government is a myth. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Don't you function in a sphere of more diplomatic (laughs) interaction? And then Leo kind of backs her up. Yeah. And it's interesting to juxtapose this kind of really brusque, I don't even know if you can call it diplomacy at this point, with the speech that Toby is writing, and then his discussion with Congresswoman Wyatt. Similarly, there seems to be very little patience for foreign governments that the U.S. doesn't see as, you know, as allies or or really sharing the same values. Yeah. um, Is Toby... This is one of the reasons why I was wondering, I was maybe a little surprised that Richard would choose this episode to submit to the Emmys. Toby strikes me as acting a little bit out of character as far as I've come to know him in this episode. I completely agree. You know, in the argument with Andy, he takes on this really jingoistic attitude, even in just the way that he phrases his views. It's not just the views themselves. And it's not even like really just the language within the statement. He says, you know, they have the line, the crushing yoke of Islamic fundamentalism. He says things like, But they're coming for us now, so it's time to saddle up. That freedom and democracy are coming soon to a theater near them, so get dressed. He wasn't writing a speech for the president. He was writing for John McClane in Die Hard, and the opening <laughs> line to the UN was going to be, yippee-ki-yay, mother Right, this feels like act three of Ghost Ship. <laughs> exactly. He sees evil. And is it, they'll thank us when we win? Is that, what does he keep repeating? They'll like us, they'll when, like we us when we win. I mean, he might as well, I just expect him to start jumping up and down and yelling, might makes right, might right. makes right. I mean, it just seems un-Toby-like. I mean, I'm not sure it, it, it feels like the face of the Bartlett administration to me altogether, but for Toby specifically to be the one digging in uh, with such bellicosity, if that's a word, the extreme nature of his language and how emphatic he is about it, it just surprised me. I'm like, wait a minute, this is not the Toby Ziegler I know. Yeah. Andrew's objection to the speech is that they are painting Islam with a broad brush. In a speech to the UN, in this, in this international setting, they're going to anger a lot of allies because they're making generalizations and painting Islamic fundamentalism as this uh, proxy for terrorism, too. In this episode, you know, 9-11 hasn't happened in the actual world of the West Wing, but clearly this is a speech born out of post-9-11 feelings. Exactly. But so it's hard for me to reconcile that kind of language coming from Toby, who is also the same person who objected to Leo about the nuance of the Pledge of Allegiance. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. In Shibboleth, it's about Leo's sister becoming the Secretary of Education, and they're talking about prayer in schools. It's the fourth grader who gets his ass kicked at recess because he sat out the voluntary prayer in homeroom. It's another way of making kids different from other kids, and they're required by law to be there. That's why you want a front and center, fourth grader, that's the prize. He's thinking about that child, but is he thinking about the Muslim fourth grader when he's putting forth all the... uh, reasons why this speech is important. Like, I think that his jingoism, the reason why it's problematic is not because Islamic fundamentalism is not worthy of objection or is completely without merit to argue that it leads to or condones 
terrorist acts or whatever, or mil- militant action. But the problem is when the president talks about Islam that way with a broad brush, then Americans hear it and they think of Islam or whatever with a broad brush as well. Yeah, no, indeed. And I, I think there is actually merit to much of what Toby says and points that he makes in his discussion with Congresswoman mm-hmm. Wyatt. But he's verging on Islamophobia in his resistance to... And I will give him, we get a little Toby buyback. In the end, he says... Let me take another look at the softer language. In other words, what, what she's suggesting is not a bad idea. It's a hedge against the kind of language he hopes to use. It would make explicit the distinctions that Toby feels are implicit in what he's saying. I think he says Islamic fanaticism is how he words it. Oh, is it fanaticism, not fundamentalism? That's my memory from the episode. I believe so. Yes, you're right. The crushing yoke of Islamic fanaticism. Which is, in some ways, is even more problematic, because fundamentalism, at least in some ways, is a known entity, but fanaticism is even broader. Yes, it is broader, exactly. And what she essentially is suggesting, whether or not, you know, her language that she's come up with these other guys is is right on. The concept of it is to make explicit the distinction that Toby feels is implicit in what he's already written. Yes. And I think it's actually a very good idea. And to his credit, I think maybe he comes around to her point. I mean, he he at least says, leave it, let me take another look at it. And I think he's getting the point. Yeah. But I'm surprised to see such a whipped up Toby to see him in those terms. Right. He's not really been the hawkish voice in the administration. In fact, he's probably the furthest left of everybody in the in the administration. Yeah, he seems to me the least likely to iterate his position with they'll like us when we win. Right. It's interesting because as much as we've shown how there were parallels between the Clinton White House and the Bartlett White House, this is really an explicit endorsement, really, of George W. Bush era policies. Well, which is why I think you know, we maybe we skipped past it pretty quickly. But your point that this is post 9-11 real world can't be ignored. It's kind of a foot in each world. We've got a West Wing world where things, sort of amorphous things seem to have happened. And we've had a special episode that also had an amorphous thing. But 9-11 hasn't necessarily happened. But I think Aaron's writing from a perspective of post 9-11, where do we settle in this sort of new world, this new they're coming for us world? Mm -hmm. So I read I read a piece in the Journal of American Culture that was written by two authors, Rachel Gantz Boriskin Boriskin and Russ Tissinger. I don't know if I'm I'm not pronouncing this correctly. McConan. But the um, but the article is called The Bushlet Administration, Terrorism and War on the West Wing. Hmm. It's a pretty interesting analysis of the West Wing and how it ended up in some ways actually being even more hawkish than what the Bush administration was saying in 2002 and 2003. There's one line in this that I really liked. They described it as an entertainment environment in which reality makes frequent guest appearances. Well put. And what you were saying just now made me think of that, that we know something has happened, but it's not like reality doesn't have a starring role in this. Yeah, it's an occasional guest star. Yeah. I also was thinking about President Obama and the use of Islamic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Comparing these two is a little bit like comparing apples and oranges. I'm glad I went back and looked at this. Here's an exchange where he was asked, why do you still refuse to use the term Islamic terrorist? And he called it sort of a manufactured issue. What I have been careful about when I describe these issues 
is to make sure that we do not lump these murderers into the billion Muslims that exist around the world, including in this country, who are peaceful, who are responsible, uh, who in this country are our fellow troops and police officers and firefighters and teachers and neighbors and friends. Well said. I think this is the point that Andy is trying to get Toby towards, and it's, it is a little surprising that he's not already there. Yeah. I thought of President Obama as well, because language does matter and nuance matters. And there were times when I was disappointed with characterizations. I remember a specific attack on a kosher market in France that at a certain point the president referred to as random violence. Then that did get my back up yeah. at the time. So I was thinking, well, is it random when yeah. people are murdered at a kosher market, this wasn't a random attack. And so I think the conversation and the argument about the language is important and vital, ultimately, because the language is important. So I like that it's brought up. I was surprised in a way about who's taking what position in the episode, but it's an important discussion. Yeah. There was one other part to that Bushlet administration piece that I liked. They said the West Wing, and here's a quote, frames terrorism as a problem that's dealt with by real, emotional, fallible human beings, rather than by institutional, governmental, organizational entities. And that is, I think, part of what makes this compelling and also frustrating in its, in its own way, is that you see it through the lens of Toby, where it is a guy. Like The kind of anger and the vitriol that's going into this gives it life. It makes it smaller, but it also makes it more real. Yeah, you know, I also felt there was maybe a hint of Toby, in a macro sense, is having frustration with the two Bartlets and with Uncle Fluffy. And he wants, I think, on a host of issues, Bartlett to call it as he sees it. You know, he, wa he wants a more extreme, edgier stronger approach from Bartlett altogether. And this mm -hmm. one maybe is a little bit getting away from him in this particular iteration of that desire. Yeah. There's a line that Toby has when he's uh, objecting to Andy's suggestion of be nice to the Arab world. He says, How about two weeks ago in the State of the Union when the president praised the Islamic people as faithful and hardworking only to be denounced in the Arab press as knowing nothing about Islam? And this one sentence, I think, is actually, there's a lot in that. And I think a lot can be extrapolated beyond just this specific issue. I think the thing that Toby is having a hard time accepting is something that happens a lot, which is that you can say something in support of an idea or in support of a community and still be wrong. Like you can be on someone's side trying to be an ally and still get it wrong. And if your reaction to getting it wrong is... Ah, <laughs> yeah, what the hell? You know, like you guys are jerks. Like I, I said the nice thing. I'm going to say what I really think now. Yeah, it shows how thin the support really is. And I feel like that exists a little bit later, too, in the episode, once we wander into the minefield of the Ainsley-Sam scenario. But just in general, I think that really indicates something that Toby's like, look, we said we, we thought you guys were nice, and then you guys still said we don't know anything about Islam. And you write this, all it does is prove that maybe actually the press was right. <laughs> right. You don't know right. anything about it. So maybe just shut up and be like, okay, like, we hear you. What can we do to learn more? Yeah. Maybe we need to listen a little bit more. Yeah. I did write one, though. One of my all-time, I feel like, favorite lines. Not that I remember it, having ever heard it before. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> it shot right to the top as I watched this episode, which 
I love is Stanley saying to the president, Screw around if you want, but it's your money, it's about to be my money, and I sleep fine. I love it Ooh, so that much. That is such good writing. Yeah. Oh, man. And uh, and his delivery of it. Adam Arkin's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's great. When you were saying earlier, like, I, I hope he has some patients who appreciate <laughs> and value him. I was thinking, either way, he's got this attitude pretty down pat. That's true. <laughs> he, he, you're right. He seems as if maybe he only has people <laughs> who think he, he's worthless and charges too much. Right. Richard's lines that he has to deliver as Toby, one reason why I can imagine submitting this is because he has to say a whole lot. Like, this is a monster scene in terms of the amount of dialogue that he has to deliver, and I can't imagine that this would have been an easy one to film. No, I, th- I think not, yeah. He also, as I'm watching Richard more and more, this is, you know, I'm assuming he doesn't listen to the podcast because you don't want to hear people, <laughs> you don't want to become aware of your own little idiosyncrasies as an actor. Right. But one of his, as Toby anyway, I think, is he's always eating a little treat. Sometimes he's actually eating a little treat. And even when there's nothing in his mouth, he's eating a little treat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's so in his head. He's, he's literally is chewing over his thoughts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he has, I love his physicality. There's also, there's that scene where Leo's taking his fifth and then sixth looks at what Toby has written. And he's just, Toby, yeah, the pacing. Right. And then he comes to a standstill and he's kind of pacing in place. He's kind of, yeah. he can't stop moving. Like he's placing. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was delighted when Leo was like, now the standing still is bothering me. And he has to sit yeah. down. Like there's an energy and a jitteriness to Richard's performance that I love. Yeah. That Sam describes it as him banging around and it really, it's a wonderful description of it. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, this is the fifth time you're reading it. Are there words in there you don't understand? And then and Leo just gives him the look, just a beautiful look of death. And then he, he's like, actually seems to be reasoning with himself. Well, of course not, because you wouldn't job. rise to a position <laughs> So Toby, you know, so that line that I, I mentioned that Toby cites the State of the Union that we had just recently seen, two weeks ago, the president had delivered the State of the Union. In real life, this aired on... February 6th, the president, George W. Bush, had just delivered a State of the Union the week before. And it was in that State of the Union that I think he coined the term the axis of evil. Really? In this speech, he invoked North Korea, Iran, and Iraq as the axis of evil. Yeah, it was right then. Very good. States like these and their their terrorist allies. So they really are kind of in lockstep with the rhetoric coming out of the Bush administration. Right. At least on this one <laughs> specific point. A lot of other things they're certainly not in Indeed. lockstep with. But So in this episode, Alana Yubak is in the West Wing. And I almost said she returns in this episode because she was also in Sports Night. Yes, that's right. She plays Dan Rydell's publicist, the one who tapes Felicity. Mm-hmm. I played a very tiny role in a movie she did also called Clock Watchers. Oh, yeah, with Stanley Tucci. Was he? No. no with No, with Hope Davis. Maybe. <laughs> I know um, Lisa Kudrow's in it. Oh, with Lisa Kudrow. You understand why I said Hope Davis instead of Lisa Kudrow. I know. I was willing to accept that they were both in it. (laughs) I wasn't even sure. Who remembers this stuff? Stanley Tucci and Hope Davis were in a movie from 1996 called Day Trippers. Huh. And this is Clock Watchers from 97. This is Clock Watchers from 97. And I think of them in the same breath. 
It's interesting. See, that's the kind of mistake I would never make because my mind is not as efficient as yours. <laughs> I don't have that kind of raw data sloshing around in my cranium. I forgot that you were in that movie. I had a very small role. I played the receptionist at the office. It was a rather unimpressive film appearance, as are many of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but so here she plays Celia, and uh, I think it's fair to say that this is an infamous scene in The West Wing. Whoa, Nelly. Hello. Hey, as you can make a good dog break his leash. So this was, I, I tried canvassing our listeners to find out if there was someone or someone's some's one who might have some experience with uh sexual harassment litigation Mm -hmm. and just to get their take on this scene i really i was nervous about talking about this episode because i feel like this is one that i don't i don't know i i wasn't exactly sure how to talk about it we're always going to get our asses handed to us anytime we discuss (laughs) Anytime it's another two guys talk about feminism scene. <laughs> well, I emailed with three different attorneys. Pick the woman. <laughs> I emailed with three different uh, attorneys, all of whom are women. I hope you're going to respond to all the other people who wrote in because we got a lot of them. Or are we just ignoring them? There are probably too many to respond to, which is wonderful. Thank you so much for writing to us. But um, in the limited amount of time that we had, I only got to exchange emails with three of them. There's your response. There's response. Yeah, exactly. But so there's a, basically, I was wondering, does this count as sexual harassment? Celia lodges a complaint sort of informally. She says to Sam, hey, this offended me. You demeaned Ainsley. And in the context of the episode, the whole thing is pretty much resolved here. But I was just wondering what that would be like, you know, if someone were to go to HR or something in in another workplace scenario, what would actually happen? And it turns out that probably nothing would happen. Oh, interesting. We're going to do something different here. I thought it would be cool to try and bring in a few West Wing Weekly listeners who have some expertise in this area specifically. So we have three listeners with us right now, and they're going to introduce themselves, Jamie, Deborah, and Amy, and um, we're going to have them introduce themselves. Amy, why don't you start? Thank you. My name is Amy Carlson. I'm a partner at Employment Rights Attorneys in San Jose, and I've been practicing employment law for over 10 years. Right now, we represent employees in their workplace disputes and employees, very small employer or small businesses. Deborah, how about you? My name is Deborah Verdeer, and I'm a partner at the law firm Manning and Cass. I work in the Arizona office of that firm, and um, we defend employers in sexual harassment suits and other employment law cases as well. I've been practicing law for 20 years and doing employment for the past 10. And Jamie? My name is Jamie Lynn Crofts, and I'm the legal director for the ACLU of West Virginia. ACLU stands for American Civil Liberties Union, and we work to represent people when their civil rights or constitutional rights have been violated by the government. So sexual harassment, when done within a government office, is kind of right up my alley. (laughs) One thing that I asked all of you when you emailed in was if what Sam says could count as sexual harassment, just because I know nothing about this stuff, all three of you said that no, it really probably wouldn't. Jamie, can can you start us off? Why wouldn't it? Right. So for something to be sexual harassment, uh, usually courts will look to see whether something was either really, really bad, if it's something that just happened one time, like a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault in the workplace. And if it's 
you know, something like this where it's comments, it's not physical, just a one-time thing probably isn't going to be enough to actually be called sexual harassment. It can, however, be used as evidence if someone is trying to show that over time these types of comments created what's called a hostile workplace. Amy, Deborah, does that sound right to you? Does that feel like that matches what your your assessment? This is Amy. Yes, very much the same as what I would have said. At least in California and in most of under federal cases, the severe or pervasive aspect of it is really hard to get. There are so many cases where something to us would seem severe and turns out that courts don't believe that it was severe enough, believe it or not. Deborah, you, you said that even though this wouldn't really qualify as harassment, the power thing is big. And I was wondering if you could talk about that part of it. Sure. A comment of a sexual nature between colleagues or coworkers who are of the same level is different than a comment from a supervisor to a subordinate, and even if it's not a direct report. So I think that in this context, Ainsley doesn't report directly to Sam. You know, she reports to Tribby, I think. But Sam has more power than she does. For example, Sam has the power to get her fired if he wanted to. I agree with the others that I don't think this comment would qualify as a hostile work environment. But I am a little cautious of the fact that Sam is a more powerful person than her within the organization. Clearly, Ainsley doesn't have an issue with what was said. The complaint really is coming from Celia. But I wasn't sure how that works, too. As employment attorneys, what happens when someone complains about a comment that was made, even if it wasn't directed towards them? Deborah, will you start us again now? Sure. The fact that the target of the comment herself was not offended makes a difference. But that doesn't mean that Celia could not have a claim for being subject to listening to comments directed at others. It has to be severe or pervasive. And this one errant comment is not likely to rise to the level of a claim. But I wanted to clarify that a comment of the sexually charged nature can be offensive if pervasive and severe enough. And if if it's a daily thing, for example, to create a sexually charged environment such that somebody who isn't the target of the comments can still have a claim. Mm -hmm. Jamie, in a government office, what if the comments were different? Like, what if instead of having a sexual overtone, what if they had a racial overtone? And again, the person who was the who they were directed to didn't have an issue with it at all, but someone who else who was in the office overheard it. I'm wondering, do comments that are about sex or potential sexual harassment, do they have a different standard than other potentially harassing comments? Technically, it's all the same standard because this is all coming from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so courts purport to use the same standard, whether the discrimination or harassment in question is based on sex, race, national origin, or religion. The problem is, in practice, that can be really hard to do. And sexual harassment claims in particular can be very hard to document particularly because most people aren't, you know, video or audio recording their workplaces. And when you put words on paper, it can be harder to tell if there was a sexual undertone to something. For example, if someone is using racial slurs, that's very obvious, whereas there are much more subtle ways to discriminate against people that can be harder to prove in court. Amy, all three of you have used the term reasonable. And 
I was just wondering, how's that adjudicated reasonability? Yeah, I was going to point this out that in in the Ninth Circuit and in California, it's actually the reasonable victim or a reasonable woman, depending. And, you know, obviously a lot of this happens to women. So they don't use the reasonable person because they want to look at it from the perspective of somebody who could take offense. And I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. I said, I don't know. I still want to meet the reasonable woman. (laughs) I want to meet this person because I don't know. Um, even since law school, I still don't know who this person is because what I take offense to, you know, it takes a lot to offend me. But then, you know, as Celia pointed out, it was offensive. And also want to add on a little bit to this, that if Sam had said as she walked away, you know, nice rear end or whatever, that would have been a completely different scene in a different conversation. Now, what is the difference between him saying, whoa, I, you know, I didn't even see that thing from the back. Or, you know, nice ass or yeah. whatever. You know, now you're talking, well, that's offensive. You know, it's offensive to a good, you know, chunk of people. But why are the two words different? Why is that a completely different scene? So when you're talking about reasonable person, I don't know. I don't know who that person is or reasonable woman. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but it's still somehow this mutually agreed upon, though totally yes. ambiguous idea that it's absolutely this hinges it is. on. Wow. Yeah, and, and it happens in a lot of different aspects of the law is the reasonably prudent person would enter into this contract or whatever. And, you know, you got 12 people who make that decision for you. I was wondering for any of you, does your professional experience and background color how you watch the episode? Or does that part of your brain get pushed aside uh, as you just sort of watching your favorite show? For me, I found rewatching this episode really, really interesting. Um, when I first watched it, I think I was about 19 and I didn't really like Celia. I had never worked in a professional workplace. You know, obviously everyone loves Sam, but when I rewatch it now as a woman who has been in a professional workplace for a number of years and has been in situations like this, I do view it a lot differently. And one thing that really stuck out to me with the episode was Sam's second interaction with Ainsley, where she's back in his office, she's changed out of the dress, but he basically like brings up the comment again, elaborates on it, and keeps trying to bring the conversation back to that when Ainsley keeps trying to bring the conversation back to work. And that really stuck out to me because that is exactly what I would probably do in that situation. Just try and bring it back to work. Yep. I'm not asking you guys to out anybody, but I was wondering if uh, in your work as lawyers dealing with potential sexual harassment cases, you also experience sexual harassment. (laughs) I can say yes to that. Absolutely. And and the same. I, you know, yeah, it it happens whether it's overt or subtle. It's there. And do you have to run through these standards in your own head of like, do I actually say something about it now? Or uh, or yeah. do you kind of look at the person being like, do you actually even know who you're talking to? Do you know what I'm capable yeah. of? <laughs> exactly. No, and that and it, ironically, you know, had been working at an employment firm when in and it was kind of just a little odd, you know, where you think um, you, you do know what we practice here, right? Well, I mean, from my perspective, I think we need to look at it as almost kind of like what Ainsley said, which is, I think we should be worried about the, what did she say, the honest to goodness sexual harassment. That's that kind of moving, reasonable woman standard. You tend to get pretty thick skin as an employment lawyer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to say certain words in front of juries huh. and do so with a straight face and be serious about it. And so I think we tend to get a little bit difficult to offend, so to speak, because we've seen it all and we've heard it all. So by comparison, what we go through isn't as bad. Well, you th- you seem like three reasonable women. I'm wondering how you feel about that comment that Ainsley makes that this is taking away attention from the real issues, including honest to God, sexual harassment. She is shutting down Celia in that moment by saying like, look, this isn't harassment because I don't think it is. And therefore it isn't. And, you know, there's a standard by which harassment should be judged and this doesn't qualify. Well, I mean, this is Deborah. I, I get asked this question a lot, which is, you know, how do you as a woman, as a feminist, go into court and defend these harassers. And my response is always that, you know, there are a lot of Celia's in the world who bring claims that are baseless. They're very costly to employers. And in my mind, it devalues the honest to goodness sexual harassment cases that are out there. I think in this context, I don't think that Sam is the bad guy. I don't think there's a hostile work environment going on in the White House in the scene. I think Celia is what we would call a hypersensitive person. And they tend to bring claims. And these claims gum up the system and make it difficult for people who are victims of honest-to-goodness sexual harassment. Amy, let me ask you, do you agree with that characterization? I absolutely agree with her. You know, there are cases of sexual harassment out there. You know, you have men and bosses who are saying, you sleep with me or you get fired, or, you know, you go out with me or you get fired, or... In really bad cases, you know, co-workers scooting up on another co-worker in the back room kind of thing and saying, oh, I was just trying to reach for this can of whatever. And that's honest to God sexual harassment. That's the stuff, you know, what the, the cases are for. It's horrible to say, but that dress was gorgeous on her. And she is beautiful in the dress. And I think that's what he was in his awkwardly Sam style was trying to say was, holy mackerel, you look beautiful. This was just teasing. This was banter. This was two friends. So I absolutely agree with it. Hmm. And Jamie, what do you think? Do you think that Celia qualifies as a hypersensitive person? Uh, Not necessarily. Celia, as we're told in the episode, is temporarily there. She isn't familiar with the office dynamics. And I think that the way that she initially brings it up to Sam is completely reasonable. I think that it's very fair for someone to tell, you know, their boss that they don't feel comfortable hearing sexual remarks like that made in the workplace. And I do agree with a lot of what both Deborah and Amy said. But one thing I do want to point out is that there is a pattern both of the you know, Ainsley and Sam's banter in the West Wing, but there's also a pattern of Sam saying incredibly inappropriate things. I mean, Sam referred to Ainsley, to the president, as a blonde Republican sex kitten. (laughs) And we can't forget the context of this. I mean, that was talking to the president. Right. Speaking to the the idea of the pervasive part of the, the work environment, right? Exactly. Actually, you just reminded me that and the president actually says that to her face, too, which was something I had totally forgot about until you just mentioned it. You're exactly right. There is a weird kind of pervasiveness of this in the White House. Well, I got to say, this is really interesting. And I want to ask you guys as experts, are there questions that I should be asking you guys now that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, this is Deborah. I, I think one of the parts that kind of gave me a little bit of discomfort as a defense lawyer is 
not so much the comment itself, but how it was handled afterwards. I wanted to see Sam be a little bit more of the supervisor and a little bit more professional. And instead of airing it out in front of everybody like it was a fight to be won as far as whether he was right or Celia was right, I think he should have called her in the office and said, well, tell me why you think it was offensive and, and I apologize and I'll, you know. It was more like what happened afterwards that gave me pause than the comment itself. Either of you guys, do you think there's something else that I'm missing that we ought to be talking about? This is Amy. This actually goes in line with what I think it was, Deborah that you were saying about I'm arguing your point as opposed to just, you know, calling her into his office and saying, hey, you know, what did I do wrong? I'm so sorry because he didn't apologize, actually. I'm thinking back on the episode. He didn't apologize at all. But it goes back to, you know, Andy and, and Toby were fighting and trying to argue their points as well. And, and this whole right and wrong aspect between the men and the women. But it wanted to point that out, that it's very much an episode of figuring out where the women stand in the White House and with regard to the men in the White House. Good point. Well, I, I think we should wrap it up here. Does that sound good to you guys? Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you guys for lending your expertise and putting it on your voice on the podcast. It's nice to actually talk to people who listen to the show outside of just Twitter, too. Regardless of the legal take on it, yeah, I was initially... It's funny. It's a pretty clunky scene, especially when it gets opened up to the larger group. Mm -hmm. And just dramatically, it feels a little clunkified to me. As does, I think... This episode, in a general sense, has some clunky moments clunk. to it. It has some clunk to it. In its trunk. It's got some clunk in its trunk, this episode. But I sort of, I get Ainsley's reaction. I get Sam's kind of sort of being surprised. But ultimately, I'm moved by Celia basically saying, like, I don't, you know, I don't remember how she articulates it. She doesn't want to be in this, in a workplace with this kind of atmosphere. And I can understand Sam does make these kind of comments a lot. And yes, it's between just two people, but they're surrounded by their co-workers. And I can understand how another woman might think, oh, is that what I'm supposed to do if I want to, you know, if I want to have a good relationship with him? Or, uh, yeah. you know, is that how you advance in the office here? And uh, of course, I defer to the legal minds who will tell me it's not harsh enough an atmosphere or it's not pervasive enough but i can understand it being just unpleasant to exactly. work in that kind of workplace exactly it doesn't meet the requirements for legally being an issue but it's just an issue in terms of sam being creepy as he often is and he's got the relationship with ainsley and that's fine and ainsley says she's not demeaned so for her it's not a problem but even as ainsley herself says all women don't have to think alike just a little grammatical quibble, which kind of annoyed me, because really what she means is not all women have to feel the same way. And it's an important linguistic distinction. You preferred if she had said, not all women have to think alike. Correct. Right. Now back to the actual merits and substance of what she said. <laughs> yeah, so maybe if Sam and she were alone, or maybe that makes right. it creepier if she's offended by it. But then you can get with the, oh, well, we have this relationship where we understand and it's not. But he didn't say it. He said it in an open workplace. Yeah. I feel ambivalent about this scene because on the one hand, it is nice to see Sam being called out in the episode, not on the podcast, but like in the episode by another character who says like, hey, that was 
fucked up. The part that I feel weird about is that I kind of feel like in some ways Celia gets shot down. And at the end of the day, it's like, Celia's wrong. She's boring and not fun and not funny. Yeah. And we got a woman to say it. Yeah. We, we get a woman to shoot her down. Right. By the way, there's also all this weird... <laughs> and again, I agree with you too. I sort of give a hat tip for Aaron, who's obviously responding to something. He's writing about this because of some criticism he... He's gotten either he's, you know, he's um, lurking on message boards or he's reading reviews where people are taking him to task a little. So, okay, at least he's writing to deal with some of what he's been accused of. But I do feel it is a little bit neatly wrapped up kind of in his favor, ultimately. Right. And also, there are weird instances of secondary and tertiary questionable comments going on during this entire conversation. Well, that's the thing. I think ultimately what Sam is most guilty of is tactical because he understands his relationship with Ainsley. It's been this flirty, fun thing where they can say these kinds of things to each other. And if he may overstep, he goes and he checks with Ainsley and he makes sure he says, did I, you know, did I offend you? Did I demean you? And she says, no, you're fine. And really, she just wants to get back to work. And she says, if I felt demeaned, I'd be among the very first people to know it. Which is a hilarious line. So that's great that he goes and he like doubles checks. But regardless, it is tactless because they aren't alone and he doesn't know who else is in there or how that might affect other people. He's just kind of like verbally spraying his scent all over the place. And then this tactlessness just keeps going. Even as he's in the middle of trying to like walk it back or qualify it or something, he still says to Charlie, you and how many Girl Scouts? Right. And also his sister has beaten him. He's like, Sam, she plays varsity. Girls varsity. (laughs) Right. I'm like, dude, can you concentrate for one minute? (laughs) Wow. Stay focused. I thought you were looking into trying to figure out whether you've got some issues. (laughs) Right. Learn something. Please learn something. Multiple people who responded to the request about the legality of this thing brought up the point that, again, outside of the legal view of it, Sam saying, Also, she started it. Is a also a really terrible, creepy thing to say. Like, how? Because she really didn't. Oh, you know, she did. Because she, she came in wearing she, a really sexy dress. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, <laughs> She provoked me. <laughs> I mean, are you really going to put that out there? Yeah. There's also like a weird, uh, ooh, stilettos moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> you dog. What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. And, and so it does feel a little bit too at the end when Ginger gets involved too, where she's like, It's called lipstick feminism. I call it stiletto feminism. Celia's saying, like, what kind of feminism do you call that? Almost like Celia is really now taking on the role of, like, there can only be one kind of feminism. Indeed. And she has to be, like, educated by the other women in the room. And it just feels... I I, I didn't like that. They, quote-unquote, educate her by beating down her version of feminism. Exactly. But I do think Celia gets a lot of points. Like, when Ainsley says, all women don't have to think alike, Celia responds with, I didn't say they did. And when someone said something that offended me, I did say so. So I was like, all right, good. There are things I like about this. There are things I don't like about it. Ultimately, my takeaway is Ainsley is so awesome. Yeah, I agree with you. There's some value here, but it's ultimately not the most enlightened conversation on the topic. Yeah. I just, I mean, what I really mostly relate to with Ainsley in this scene is her desire for a cupcake. And now we're going to take a quick break.
The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace will help you build the site for whatever your idea is. If you've ever had a cool idea for a new website, you can do it with Squarespace. You can showcase your artwork. You can blog. You can publish any content you can come up with. You can sell products and services of all types. We use Squarespace for our own website, thewestwingweekly.com, which by now I'm guessing you've probably seen. If not, you should check it out, thewestwingweekly.com. It's an example of a Squarespace site that was easy to put together and is easy to maintain. Every time we come up with a new idea for the site, it's quickly accomplished. It's true. In fact, I use Squarespace for my own website outside of the West Wing Weekly. It's rishikesh.co. It's my own personal page, and I use Squarespace for that. So check out Squarespace. They help you make it, whatever it is you're trying to make. Go to squarespace.com slash West Wing for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code West Wing, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Go to squarespace.com slash West Wing. And now back to the show. What did you think about Donna's subplot in this episode? It starts with her having a drink with uh, this guy who has a startup, CapitalScoop.com. Well, I tend, I think, to view it through the prism of the conversation we just had, which is that she is not treated too particularly well by Josh. So she meets up with Casey Reed. Casey Reed values her, I think, in a way that her present employer does not. And really that she doesn't even value herself. Right. Her immediate reaction is, no, 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 I'm not qualified. He makes her an offer that is obviously quite impressive financially. She says, this is your operating budget. <laughs> uh, this is your starting salary. She goes back and gets into a conversation with Josh where she tells him about this offer. And he shows interest and questions her to a certain extent and then just walks away and never even asking her whether she might seriously consider the offer or what she's thinking or he's sort of out of hand just i guess assumes there's no way she's leaving him he's correct as a matter of fact she is ultimately very very loyal to him but he doesn't treat her that well he doesn't take it very seriously and not even seriously enough to ask her what she thinks about this offer and whether she's going to consider it yeah no for josh he's like oh that's a thing that happened there's no way you're gonna take the job right okay but i love donna's energy when she comes back that felt so real she comes back and his first josh's first line to her is like where have you been you know like kind of grumpy and brusque already and there's so much in her look on her face and in her voice as she says that so much like kind of potential resentment there i told you i was going out and you can hear like a like another voice in her head saying, yeah, and f- you, I've got a great job offer and I don't need you to be like, talk to me like this. Yeah, I, I also thought one of the more subtle aspects of the episode involved, Donna gets sort of pulled off into, in sort of a tangential way, being involved in the Billy Price story. Mm-hmm. And she's asked kind of to sit with the wife while the drama is unfolding. And I feel like that also is another little illustration to Donna of kind of the level of importance she has. Obviously, she's doing an important thing in a, an interpersonal kind of way, but she has no information. She's been sent in there without any information. She's just kind of a placeholder while the power players try to figure out what's going to happen in this. And at one point, the wife asks her something, and she says, I, you know, I just don't know. And I thought this is kind of playing in against the backdrop of her having been offered a job where she'll have a bit more to do and her intellect will be valued. Yeah. 
Oh, so you, th- you saw her in there saying, I don't know what's happening, being like further evidence for why she should take the job because she'd be given more information. I thought in some ways it was almost a repudiation of the idea of that she should be issues director because she's like, I don't know about this stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, well I mean, yeah, I, I'm not even sure what I thought Donna's take on it was, but it was making me think that somewhere in there she must be pondering this other job right because right now she's just a person she's just a body to sit in a room with this woman who's going through hell and she hasn't even been given any kind of briefing or information that she could offer to console the woman or to 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 make her feel better or to keep her in the loop right i think the reason why josh can laugh off the capital scoop job is because he knows what donna will ultimately come to remember by the end of the episode, which is the gravity of what happens, the value of working at at the White House. Of course, this is like a you know the idealized version of the White House where nobody leaves for more money, where people are the, where mm-hmm. right, right. He feels yeah, and personal ambition is totally subjugated to their sense of morals and ethics and contributing to the betterment of the world. Right. Why cover the thing when you can be involved in the thing? Exactly. This is a little aside, but when Donna comes back and Josh immediately has homework for her to do, you know, tasks for her, one of them is he asks her to get get him a Facebook because he keeps on getting confused between Cooper and Hooper. And it reminded me of the Stackhouse filibuster. In that episode, Cara Delizia, you might remember, plays an intern who comes and talks to Sam about the reports. In the Roosevelt Room, sure. And her name in it is Winifred Hooper. That's right. Winifred Cooper being the name of Danica McKellar's character on The Wonder Years. Danica McKellar, who would later, spoiler alert, will come on and join the West Wing (gasps) as a guest later on. Well, that's unlike you. And here's another thing. Margaret, you know what Margaret's last name is? Miller. (laughs) (laughs) You know what uh, Margaret Leo's assistant's last name is? Miller. Hooper. Is that true? Yeah. Margaret Hooper. Mm -hmm. It was funny that... Winifred Hooper, they never said Winifred Hooper, Margaret Hooper, no relation. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe they hadn't figured out Margaret's last name at that point. But anyway, Winifred Hooper, Winnie Winnie Hooper, Winnie Cooper. Because Sam even makes a joke. Should I call you Winnie? Oh, that's right. I liked the breaking of the news, this horrible piece of news that this woman's husband has been killed in an ambush happening in the background. Yeah. Almost in a blur, not in a blur, but, uh, you know, soft focus. Right. But you can still see the physicality of it, the awkward almost breakdown and the attempt to sort of ease her under the couch. I just thought it was beautifully done. We don't need to be in the room. We don't need to hear the words. We don't have to see the horror play out. There's something about it. It's just as powerful, if not more powerful, to see it happening in the in the background, the way they shot it. Yeah, that's what I, I think is so beautifully done here. Because to be in the room to like, I guess really dramatically milk the horror of that situation isn't necessary. We still understand what's happening. We still feel the tragedy of it. But instead, they use that moment to inform Donna's perspective. Hmm. So this part that never we never actually hear, you know, whether she's going to take the job or not. But in this moment, we kind of understand that she won't because she in seeing that and seeing what's happening, you know, and then she turns afterwards and she sees Josh and it's kind of in an unspoken way, we get the sense that she can't leave this job. That scene is playing out for us, but it's playing out for us by playing out for Donna. 
one of the things I love about this episode is at that moment um, we hear music and it's a very, very quiet episode in terms of music. There are only three instances in the whole thing. Huh. One is a single note, you know, like just kind of a little pad that kind of comes in underneath the president as he's talking to Stanley, where he says, did anybody know you on the plane? As it leads into the uh, opening titles, mm -hmm. it's not even like really music. It's just like sort of a tone. And then there's no other music until this moment. The whole episode is, That's is rare. quiet. It's rare. And it really, I feel like it gives a sense of place to the episode. There's something kind of unsettled and quiet and, you know, it's so late there. It really grounds the episode in a feeling by having it be so quiet throughout. And then the two times when they use the music dramatically, it isn't to tell us how we should feel. It's just a subtle way of showing how one of the characters feels. So here it's, it's not like the music isn't played like, everybody, you should be crying now. Right. It's actually bringing us inside Donna's head where we see it through Donna's eyes and it just kind of fills out that moment. I thought that was really nice and really centered it on her. Yeah. In a way that blunted what could be like a ham handed moment. I guess ham is blunt anyway, but you know what I mean? I wouldn't know. Oh, sorry. Was that joke? Not kosher. <laughs> Boop. Um, there's a moment when Stanley leaves the president alone after their session and Lincoln's portrait is up on the wall mm -hmm. in very soft focus. And I was disappointed, actually, that they then rack focus to the portrait. Like, I already got that it was Lincoln yeah, in know. a very subtle and blurred way. And I thought, like, oh, no, no. I, this moment that I just loved kind of was reduced to me by making it explicit. It's true. And this is the only other moment where there's music, ah, is that scene. Interesting. It doesn't as effectively do the thing that they're doing here with Donna. Right. I contrast those two moments. Yeah. You're not just in the president's head. It is a little bit of like tying the bow on the ribbon. Yeah, it's a subtle thing and it makes a huge difference. You know, there's this really beautiful buildup to that. The reason why I felt like I didn't need to see Lincoln in there at all. And I certainly didn't need to see Lincoln in focus because one of the things that I love about setting up the episode with the tour is it, it gives the setting of the White House and the office of the presidency, this historical context. And that really comes to the foreground when, when Stanley says, This is a hell of a curve you get graded on now. Lincoln freed the slaves and won the Civil War. You know, and you've got the Resolute Desk and Rutherford B. Hayes. There are all these past presidents that President Bartlett needs to live up to or he can compare himself against. Meanwhile, the other ghost that he's battling and comparing himself to and, and trying to live up to is his father. And so when he goes to pick up the cigarette at the end, and there's a picture of Lawrence O'Donnell as his father, and then he picks up the thing, and then it goes to the picture of Lincoln. And we're like, yes, we're caught here between the personal mm -hmm. and the historical. And I was kind of like, I get why it's there. But uh, I appreciated that we hadn't really been treated that way throughout most of the rest of the episode. Yeah, I'm with you. Let me ask you this, though. Is it really a fair read of President Bartlett that Stanley makes? I think Lincoln did what he thought was right, even though it meant losing half the country. I think you don't do what you think is right if it means losing Michigan's electoral votes. We've very recently seen him decide to take censure, regardless of what it means to his legacy, possibly to his re-election. I've seen it argued on both sides. It's the better thing to do for re-election. It's damaging. But he's given a, f*** it, I'm going to do the right thing kind of speech there. 
Bartlett's caught in between. He isn't just the guy that Stanley describes. Therein lies his personal struggle, but I feel like he got a little bit shortchanged on credit for being the guy who often does do the right thing at some expense. Mm -hmm. I also thought that line pushed a little bit the boundaries of believability for me because I wasn't sure if one, as a therapist, Stanley would be so prescriptive, sorry for that pun, in terms of like, this is what's happening and this is, you know, what you're doing so early on in their discussions. And I also wasn't sure if he would even, he's really speaking Toby's voice there. And to some extent, Leo's. He's speaking with the kind of familiarity and insightfulness of a, of a political operative. Mm-hmm. Good point. And I was just wondering, is, is does he really know this stuff that well that he, he could make that point? And would he if he did? So I think you're right. I think you're right on both counts. Yeah. But I do. Uh, this comes towards the end of their conversation. And I love how Stanley ends it where he's like, we've been here for two hours. It was a double session. We're done for the night. Stanley. I hate to put it this way, but I'm me and you're you, and we're done when I say we're done. No. I think you could use some assistance right now, sir. Use me, don't use me, but all I can offer you is this. I'll be the only person in the world, other than your family, who doesn't care that you're the president. Our time is up. Yeah, I do like that turn is you know Mm -hmm. your family and i will be the only people who don't care that you're the president Mm -hmm. i think i only have one final stray thought which is um (laughs) sam really just starts off this episode misspeaking (laughs) because he says to toby you bet baby (sighs) you probably want to rethink calling me baby right yeah almost as if it's a foreshadowing of everything that's going to come afterwards right That's funny. What did you think about the president's attitude towards the word stress? I don't like the word stress. It's a Madison Avenue word. It's something that can be cured with flavored coffee and bath bubbles. I like that little bit. It's very Aaron. Do you think that that's how Aaron feels about it as well? Is he writing from his own perspective there? Or is he, I found it to be a very believable, like this is the cranky grandpa part of of the president. And it's particularly New Hampshire of him, I thought. Huh. Yeah, I can see that. And that does sound Aaron-like to me. Yeah. I liked that side of his curmudgeonness. It felt genuine. Yeah. It's a new kind of idea. The idea that the president doesn't like the word stress, but it, it really feels like it fits in with everything else. I agree. And he's like, you don't feel stressed? He says, I have a job I like and my family's healthy. There is something kind of very old world about it. Yeah, exactly. It's an old fashioned kind of tough guy. Yeah. Also, here's a confusing part about the whole President Stanley thing. He knows why he's not sleeping. Well, I, I had the same thought, too. Uh, you know. Like, why is it? And he is paying him, and he has a limited amount of time. He knows. I mean, the, I'm sure the president has lots of other things. Yeah. They've talked through arthritis, too much light in the room, all this stuff. Like, he could have bottom-lined it a little quicker. Right. He's like, four nights ago, I stopped being able to sleep well. Oh, what happened four nights ago? I was told that my father doesn't like me. <laughs> I was called on my traumatic, abusive past with my father. Okay, well, let's start there. <laughs> yeah, we could have saved 45 minutes. Does he really not know? No, I think it's more I think it's more like he's trying to test the metal of Stanley and see whether he can get to it. But yeah. ultimately he gets to it by saying, what happened four days ago? <laughs> <laughs> Their whole exchange. I, I love when the president says... Stanley, 
I think you're underselling yourself when you say you're not an expert in sleep disorders because you've been right straight on the money so far. <laughs> Very funny. I also was a little bit surprised by Leo kind of letting Toby's evasiveness slide when he asked him, What did you talk about? Nothing. He seemed kind of upset about it. It didn't go well. What was it? It was personal. It was personal? Yeah. Well, that always works well with him. Well, I thought maybe, you know, by cloaking himself in the personal nature of it, that just mm -hmm. put down a, so that's it, so don't ask anymore. And, that you know, somehow Leo respected that grudgingly. Or, but you're right, maybe not. Isn't it weird that Toby didn't think that it was worth discussing with Leo? He's like, I was talking to the president about his approach to re-election. It happened to also bring up, I framed it around his relationship with his dad, but the ultimate point was you need to sharpen up your game or you're not going to win. And uh, I don't know, it seems like, you know, especially given what the president's reaction was, and now they've called in a psychiatrist. Again, Leo's not making the connection. Hey, the president was really upset by this mysterious conversation, and now we have a psychiatrist coming in because he can't sleep. Yeah, at this point, you think Toby would say, so hey, look... <laughs> <laughs> Something happened. Yeah, no, I think you're right. This is, how, well, this is, I think, ultimately why this isn't an exemplary episode and should not have been submitted for Emmy consideration. Um, no, it's just, it's a little, if you poke it too much, there's some weaknesses there. It doesn't quite have the structural integrity that the best West Wing episodes have. Yeah. This is another aside, but when, when Celia says, Isn't the point that Sam wouldn't have been able to find another way to be chummy with a woman who wasn't sexually appealing? This is where I think things start to break down a little bit because Celia suddenly now assumes she knows everything about the relationship and the context of that comment. You know, it's one thing for her to say, I was offended by that comment, but another thing to say, Sam wouldn't be able to find another way to be chummy with a woman who wasn't sexually appealing. Like, right. that's where it kind of oversteps. An overstep, yeah. Yeah, but it immediately made me also think of how much Sam failed with Bernice. Do you remember when he's like, How you doing, Bernie? Not wild about people calling me Bernie. Sure, what should I call you? Bernice is fine. But how will you know I'm your buddy? I'm okay living in the dark on that. I was like, well, maybe she's actually right. Maybe he does have trouble finding ways to be chummy with women. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the West Wing Weekly. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you want to write to us or leave us a comment, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or on our website, thewestwingweekly.com. Thanks so much to Deborah, Amy, and Jamie, our panel of experts who joined us. I'm going to put a link to each of their Twitter handles on our website. So if you want to give them a shout out and tell them thanks for, for their contribution too, you'll find that on thewestwingweekly.com. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, a curated collection of fantastic podcasts. You should check out the rest of them. They're at radiotopia.fm. Radiotopia is part of PRX and is made possible by a grant from the Knight Foundation and by the support of listeners like you. And this West Wing Weekly podcast was made possible with your support, buying pins and hitting that donate button, and with the skills of Margaret Miller, Zach McNeese, and Izzy Molina. Also, I don't know why we haven't plugged your other podcast in a while. Go listen to Song Exploder. The New York Times recently wrote, In the world of beautifully produced podcasts, Song Exploder is the beacon. Short version, it's a show that dissects a song. Long version, it's a show filled with serious lines of honesty, cinematic production, and peaks inside the creative process. That's awesome. Thanks, Josh. Okay. Okay. What's, What's next? next? 
Thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia.